Welcome to Luke chapter 12. The Gospel according to Luke chapter 12, be page 1199 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you didn't bring a copy of Scripture, please just feel free to grab that black hardbound Bible in front of you. Open to page 1199. You'll be able to follow along with us today. It's been very uh, encouraging to see you here today. Uh, if you um, have really stopped to think much about the last several weeks, uh, two weeks ago, Donnie preached and told you that you were rich. Last week, I told you you were greedy, so I'm just excited anybody's here. <laughs> Amen. So, today should serve as a great encouragement as we look to God's Word. I do want to say before we pray and read this passage of Scripture that I think this, uh, every time that we gather together and we study God's Word, it's a great opportunity for us to be captivated and transformed. I believe that this particular passage of Scripture we'll look at this morning, that today there's a great opportunity for uh, some of you, if not many of you in this room, to be set free. And so I just want to implore you to consider deeply that which we will talk about today, because we will address an issue that is plaguing far too many people in this room. And uh, I believe that some simple clarification and understanding could be a revolution in your life. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this word. God, we declare that it is uh, from you, intended for us. We receive it as perfect, infallible, holy in every way. And so, God, we thank you for it. Now, will you use it to teach us, instruct us, to uh, set us free, Lord God, that we might see clearly that which you intend for us to see through it, God. Use my mouth, Lord God, now to minister your word to these people that I love. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 12, we want to begin reading in verse... 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, or what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like these. If then God so clothes the grass with which today is in the field and tomorrow will be thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not be, do not seek what you will eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations and the world seek after, and your Father, He knows what you have need of these. But seek the kingdom of God, and these things shall be added unto you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old. A treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief appears nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, as we recall from last week, as we dealt with the passage that just precedes this, we know that Jesus is surrounded by this immense crowd. That there are tens of thousands of people that are thronging against him and climbing over each other to, to get to him and to hear what he has to say or to see what he has to do. And in the midst of this enormous crowd, Jesus uh, transfers back and forth between speaking to the multitude and speaking to a subset within the crowd. And so I want you to notice he begins in 22 and he said unto his disciples... And so again, we see Jesus speaking not to the crowd in a general sense, but He's speaking to those whom are following Him, those who are seeking to follow Him, those who have hearts that desire to hear. And so He's speaking to a specific group within the context of this enormous crowd. And so what we find first is that He's going to give a prohibition. 
that he's going to give this warning. He says that we're not to worry. And I want us to think, first of all, about what he doesn't say. He doesn't say to those whom he's speaking to quit it. Just not to worry and then just go on. Certainly sometimes he will make just a command and then he will just move on. But here he doesn't do that. And so as we begin to just approach this magnificent passage of Scripture, I want you to see that Jesus is going to walk us very patiently and very kindly through this examination of worry and why we worry and what we ought to do and to give us understanding of anxiety and how we struggle and how so oftentimes in our lives we feel overwhelmed by the things that are going on around us. And so, first, I guess what we need to do is understand what is worry and anxiety? What, what do these two words actually mean? Well, the word worry is actually... Uh, translated from a word that means to choke or to strangle. And so if you are a worrier, then you need no further explanation of that because worry will will choke the life out of you. It will strangle uh, the the joy of life and even the ability to uh, to participate oftentimes in what is going on around you. Worry essentially is a constant or consistent obsession or preoccupation with the future. To worry is to be concerned over the potential, not the actual. It is to, it is to, to fixate your mind on some future event that may or may not ever come to pass, but to just allow that to begin to control your present. That is what worry is. Anxiety, on the other hand, is really the desire to control that which you cannot control. When we feel anxious, when, when we have anxiety attacks or panic attacks, it's because we are trying to gain control of the uncontrollable. And when we do that, we lose our capacity or our faculties to hold things together. And so we find ourselves anxious or suffering under the uh, oppression of anxiety. So our worry and our anxiety are, according to what Jesus will show us here this morning, really are born out of a lie or a set of lies that must be replaced with truth. That when we worry and when we are anxious, we are believing something to be true that is actually not true, that is causing us to lose, really, track of the reality in which we live. And so... It's really wrong thinking and wrong priorities that are the cause of these two calamities. I want you to, to, to think about this as a, as a sequence of events, almost like train cars as they would connect together before they would travel down the track. That The first is fact, then there's faith, and then there's feeling. And this is the way it ought to go. There ought to be some factual truths that we know to be true that we based our lives on. And, and what is true ought to be the things that we put our faith in. And it's what we put our faith in that creates the way we feel. So if we start with what's true, we put our faith in what we know to be true, then our feelings will be based on that. The problem is, is that we get them out of order. And what we do is we start to put our faith in the way we feel. And when we do that, we find ourselves utterly and completely overwhelmed with worry and anxiety. And so Jesus is going to explain to us today exactly how this works. Really, we all understand that, that our emotion and our devotion are connected. And emotion is a good thing. So long as it's following proper devotion. But where emotion gets us in trouble is when it's linked to some improper devotion. When we devote ourselves to putting our faith in the way we feel, we're going to have some very wrong emotion, which leads us to anxiousness, worry, and oftentimes darkness and even depression. So, we need to ask two questions. Because let's face it, in this room this morning... There's worry and there's anxiousness. 
And even now, if this has already become very personal for you in what I've already said, which I know that for many of you it is, and as this text has really dealt with my heart this week, I want to I wanna just lay a little foundation here for you to just begin at a nice, easy step in understanding as to where we're going. Really, there are two primary questions that need to be asked. And and really, you should write this down. It's very simple. You could remember, but you should write these two questions down for yourself, for people you care for. They're very simple, but here they are. The first question is this. Who is in control? That is the first and primary question that must be asked. All of us must have complete and utter understanding and verification to the answer to that question. The second question is, once we've answered the first question, then what are they like? See, who is in control? And then whoever is in control, well, what are they like? What do you know about them? What is the truth about them? And if you can answer those two questions correctly, you can begin to deal with and understand exactly what Jesus is going to express to us this morning. It really is very simple to express uh, and even oftentimes understand, but it is so difficult, so difficult for us to apply in our own lives. Okay, let's look at verse 22. Then he said to his disciples, therefore I say unto you, do not worry about your life, Jesus says. What you will eat, nor about your body, or what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. I want you to see, first of all, God's unbelievable plan. That God has a plan. Now, when Jesus says, do not worry about your life, this is a present active imperative, and it has a negative participle. Now, I know that doesn't mean a lot to those of you that aren't English teachers, but what I want you to understand about that is that it, it implies that the people Jesus is speaking to are, as he's speaking, struggling with this issue. He's not talking about something they may face in the future. He's not talking about something that they might one day discover. He's talking to people that, as he's speaking are worried he's just dealt with big issues like being a hypocrite and and denying christ and not to be afraid of men and 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 then he's moved into your treasure and your possessions and how you're to use those for the kingdom and so these are a group of people who are worried they're worried about what's going on they're worried about what jesus is is going to do and where he's going and how all this is going to work out and so he's talking to worried people and that's important And he says, do not worry about your life. Now, if that's all we had was verse 22, I think I could preach this sermon. And here's why. Because the very idea that you're here today, that you exist, you're at some age, you're at some level. There's no one here who's zero. And everyone here is plus some amount of days from zero. And you're here. And so that means that... Well, how did you get here? In other words, don't worry about your life. What life? The life that you have. Well, what is that life? Is that life existed for a number of days, a few number of days? Some of you feel like it's been an unlimited number of days. But it's been some days. But but how have you existed? How How have you maintained? How have you managed to stay alive? Have you done that? So Jesus says, well, don't worry about your life. Just drawing attention to the fact that you have a life and how have you made it this far? It hasn't been because of you because with just five seconds of explanation, I could, I could name a thousand things that, that you need to live that you have no control over. I mean, we could just start with oxygen maybe? How are you doing in that capacity? I mean, I, there may be somebody here like, I got my tank. But other than that, we're all dead. So the fact that you have a life ought to draw your attention to there is something going on that you do not control. And so Jesus is talking about your physical life, the fact that you're here, that you exist. And so what is God saying? Well, he's saying that 
Can't you see that I created you for more than just simply to exist? That you're not here as some sort of, you know, accident that just happened through some fusion of particles and all these sorts of random events that just led to the creation of you as you went from one thing to another thing to another thing. And now finally we have humans and here we are and you just are there to just exist. Well, that's not at all what the Bible teaches. And so Jesus is just simply verifying the fact that, well, there's more to you than just existing, that God has a a much higher purpose for us than existence. Romans 4, the Apostle Paul says, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. It's an amazing passage of Scripture where the Apostle Paul is declaring that that sinners condemned to death, believing in Christ, will then live through the imputed righteousness of Christ into their life. So what you are not, you can become in God. In other words, there's nothing innocent about us. But God puts His righteousness upon us and He makes what cannot be any other way what is His way. And so that's a, that, that's just a great illustration of the fact that we are hopeless and helpless apart from God. See, God didn't send His Son to this earth to die so that we could exist. We were already doing that. There wouldn't have been any need. Clearly there had to be more. There had to be some plan. There had to be something else to come. Why would He sacrifice all that He did If things weren't going to change, if there wasn't something different. See, he points out food and clothing. Well, there's a number of reasons maybe why he does that. But at the very least, food and clothing. In light of the extravagant price that God paid for his children. Would it not be absurd to think that he would not provide the very essentials that they need for life? I mean... Would that make any sense at all? And yet, we worry. We fret. We get anxious. Paul says in Ephesians 2, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That Jesus declares that that man... And woman are created in the image of God, that, that we are His poema, His, His, His wonderful, artistic, beautiful creation, a one of a kind, original, that you have a purpose to, to walk in these good works that God has prepared beforehand, which declares the reason why He might pay such an extravagant price for us. But you see, if, If we think that somehow we're in control, if we think that somehow we can manipulate things to work out for our benefit, then we begin to lead ourselves astray. Because the truth is, is that you and I have never been in control. Never. Nor will we ever be in control. But salvation brings us into a relationship where we then have the ability to know the character and nature of the one who is in control. You see, with regards to worry and anxiety, the great transition in salvation is that no human is in control. But at salvation... You're able to know the character and nature of the one who is in control. Apart from salvation, apart from knowing the God who reigns supremely over all things, your life is in the hands of a stranger. That would make me anxious. That would make me worry. So you see, we don't gain control in salvation. What we gain is the peace and comfort and knowledge of who is in control and who's always been in control. You see, you can't have a Lord and call the shots. It just simply doesn't work. It just simply doesn't work. So we see that God has this unbelievable plan. Secondly, I want you to see God has an unfailing promise. He has this unfailing promise and this provision that goes along with it. In 1 Peter 5, the Bible says that we're to cast all our cares upon Him, for He cares for us. We, we, we see that the Bible declares these promises as if they're just the nature of who God is. 
But think about what that means to you and me. That He cares for us. That He cares for us. The one who is the king, the one who is in control, the one who controls all the things we can't control, cares for us. Look at what Jesus says in verse 24. He says, consider, think about the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse or barn, and God feeds them. Or how much more valuable are you even than the birds? Now, Jesus says, well, consider, think about the ravens. In other words, think. Use your mind. Engage yourself with what's going on around you. You've seen birds. You see them flying around. You may not understand exactly how that works, but you see that they live. You see that they somehow manage to to eat and to survive. And so, you see, faith is not this this blind following that's void of rational thinking and examination. Jesus says, think about it. Faith is thinking. Anxiety, on the other hand, is a lack of thinking. You see, anxiety is just to look around to see all the things going on around you and just to think, well, they just sort of happen. Therefore, I think I'm going to take control of my life as the birds and everything else take control of their life, when obviously that is impossible. How is it that the birds manufacture uh, food and living spaces and all the things that they need? How? How is it that they know where to fly at what time of year and what to do? How? You see, that doesn't make any sense. Jesus says, think. So the first argument that Jesus makes is, obviously, with just a little bit of thought, someone is in control. Job 38 says, Who provides food for the raven? When its young one cries out to God and wander about for a lack of food? In other words, think. Psalm 145, the eyes... Of all who look expectantly to you. And you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. God is declaring that He is in control and that He has a plan. Ephesians 1 says, In Him also we have obtained an inheritance. Well, what is that inheritance? Being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So He's in control and He has a plan. And it's a good plan. It's the counsel of His will. He cares for us. He takes care of us. He watches over us because He says, well, how much more valuable are you than birds? You see, this, this is not, this is second grade. It's just birds, folks. We get so wound up and worried and anxious and freaked out about things. And God says, time out. Hold on. I know there's all these complexities of all the problems and the struggles you're facing. I know that you watch TV and Congress is a mess and everything's going down the drain and you don't know what's going to happen to the economy and your job's in jeopardy and the doctor's running tests and all these things are going on. But Jesus says, wait, consider the birds. Let's just stop a minute. How does that happen? Just think. Look around. Open your eyes. There must be someone in control. It couldn't work any other way. He says, verse 25. And when you by worrying, can you add one cubit to your stature? If you then are not able to do the least, well, then why are you anxious for the rest? Again, consider. Consider this issue of your, not height, but the length of your time. A a cubit is a a unit of measurement. And it is oftentimes a, a measurement of length, but that would be 18 inches, which would mean if this verse were referring to my height, that if I were to gain one cubit, I would be eight inches taller than Shaquille O'Neal, which would be a problem. (laughs) So, obviously... Now, I know there's some of you in here like, I could use a cubit, but I can't. So, obviously... It's a measurement of time. Oftentimes in Scripture, it's used to measure an hour. So you can't, you can't even, you can't add an hour to your life. You can't. It's ridiculous to even consider. Look at verse 37. Consider the lilies and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. 
And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Again, notice he doesn't say you of no faith. He says you of little faith. He's speaking to people with some faith, but the faith is too little. See, there are people in this room who are ate up with worry and anxiety. You have some faith. The problem is, is what is it in? What are you so afraid of? What are you so wound up about? Consider verse 29. He said, do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. Mind. You see, the mind is what is the key to anxiousness. The mind run amok. Psalm 34 says this, So taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. There is no want to those who fear Him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. In other words, you, you hear Scripture speaking to your mind, calling you as His children to examine that which goes on around you. And in light of that, to come to some conclusions based on what He says, that you can, you can have faith and you can have peace in the God who is declaring truth in His Word to us. Think about David, man after God's own heart, after all that he faced after all he endured, after all that he had seen in his life, everything he'd witnessed, he says these words in Psalm 37. He says, I've been a young man and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging for bread. He is ever merciful and he lends and his descendants are blessed. See, in light of all David had seen, he says, you know what? I've seen God take care of his people. Generation after generation after generation. And that's what we've seen. Generation after generation after generation. Has it always been the way that we thought it ought to be? No. Are there not some real struggles and trials in this room right now? Absolutely. Are there things that we would have a hard time explaining? Most certainly. But God's not done. Number three, look at verse 30. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you have need of these things. See, He introduces now a new component here. He wants you to see that it's your Father who's in control. He's not just, he's not just a God. He's not just uh, supreme. He's not just powerful and mighty. He's not just good. He doesn't just have a plan. But He's your Father. In other words, you have an unlikely parent. A father who is in control. And the way this happens is through the spirit of adoption. And the Bible declares this in Romans chapter 8, for example. For you did not receive a spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, or Daddy. You see, we've been adopted. We were once orphans. But now, as His children have been adopted into His family, Ephesians 2. That at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is how we entered the world. And what we need to understand is that everything connects together. That God has designed everything in creation to bear witness to other things. And He's given us so many ways to see how this works. He puts us into families, earthly families. As an example, so that we would understand the role of a father that he plays for us. Because he knew that it would be very difficult. I mean, if he just, if he just said, well, I'm God and I've got a good plan and I'm in control and I'm your father and we didn't know what a father was, then what would we do? I'd have to spend 10 weeks declaring what a father is. Which would be hard for someone who didn't have a father. But you see, now I have a father. And what I understand is that earthly parents are simply, they're training wheels. That's all they are. Earthly parents are just there to sort of give you an example of what riding a bike is really like. 
And you know, sometimes when you're teaching your child how to ride a bike, you get those training wheels set up. And earthly fathers, you know, some of them are pretty good with a wrench and some of them aren't. And so sometimes they get one tight, not the other tight. And when the kid leans on one side, kaboom, they fall over. Because dad didn't tighten the training wheel. Because dad's not perfect. But it's not the bike's fault. It's the training wheel that failed. You see, parents are like training wheels. All I can be is evil compared to my heavenly father. The best I can hope to do is just not kill my kids. That's all I can do. That's why we always feel so inadequate. We always feel so defeated. None of us ever says, you know, I am a great parent. We never feel that way. We might act that way, but inside we don't feel that way. And over and over, you're raising kids and we're thinking, now what do I do here? Now what do, and I've raised most of your kids and I've still asked that question. What do you do? How do you do this? Luke says in Luke 11, we studied this verse some months ago, where Jesus is teaching on prayer and how you ask for things and get other things and how God always gives what we need. And here's what he says. If you then, being evil, speaking of earthly parents, know how to give good gifts to your children... Well, then how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In other words, we we can never hope to even come close to a heavenly father. We're not perfect. We're evil. But we are training wheels. And you see, some of you in this room have had phenomenal training wheels. Some of you in this room, like me, we just sort of got on the bike. And we had to try to ride without training wheels. And there wasn't anyone there to teach us. And we fell over and we got up and we fell over and we got up and we fell over and we got up. And God bless those of you that had a father there to teach you and tighten those things and run behind you and hold that seat and make sure you were okay and tell you that there even was such a thing as a helmet. See, that's what's wrong with me. I didn't have a helmet, y'all. It's not my fault. So, why do I say that that this is an unlikely parent? Well, for two reasons mainly. First of all, because as orphans, we, we aren't holding out for perfect parents. We're orphans. Orphans just want parents. So it's kind of unlikely that orphans who just want parents end up with the perfect parent. That ought to make you cheer a little bit. Amen. You got a perfect heavenly father. That wasn't what you were looking for. That wasn't what you asked for. And it certainly wasn't what you deserved. But it's what you got. Second reason he's an unlikely parent is because life seems entirely too difficult at times. It makes it hard to believe that we really are parented by this perfect God. It just seems unlikely. You walk through a situation, a circumstance in your life, and you just think, oh, Lord, if I thought for a thousand years I couldn't figure out how this is going to work out for good, I can't figure out how this isn't terrible, how this isn't painful, how this isn't hurtful, how this isn't just absolutely rotten. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 16, he says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You see, we're, we ought to know that. That, the, that our spirit should bear witness to the fact that we're children. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, join heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him. We suffer with Him. We suffer We're heirs of Christ. We're we're joint heirs with Christ. We're children of God. But we suffer with Him that we also may be glorified together. Now, this is important because when you're adopted, you take on the name and identity of the person who adopted you. And so, therefore, if you as an orphan have been adopted by this God, if you are called a Christian or a little Christ, then you have been adopted by the one who is known as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That's the one who you model your life after. You're the one that says in Isaiah 50 that I gave back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from the shame and the spitting. 
You see? You've, you hit the jackpot. You got adopted by the perfect heavenly father, the one you weren't looking for, the one you didn't deserve, the one you never thought you could have. You got adopted by him. But in that, you take on the nature and character of the one. That's your new name. That's your new identity. You are now adopted into the family of this one who's acquainted with grief. So whatever gave you the idea that it was going to be smooth sailing, where is that verse in Scripture that everything's just going to be easy? That there's not going to be any sickness? There's not going to... Isn't it amazing that our minds can run so amok that we can have a Bible in our car, a Bible in our house, a Bible, you know, in every room of our house, a Bible at work on the desk. We can have Bibles everywhere, and yet we can negate the fact that every single person that followed Christ suffered. Most of them died. They were tortured and persecuted. But some Somehow we've come to the conclusion that we should be excluded from all that. Maybe we should read it. It's not in there. You see, there are plenty of things to wonder about. I will confess that. I will admit that. I am the chief of all wonders. No one daydreams and thinks and imagines more than I do, I would hope. I do. And if you're like me... I understand. But here's the thing. I don't know. I don't know how tall you're going to get. I don't know what it's going to be like when you grow up. I don't know who you're going to marry. I don't know whether or not you're going to get sick or have cancer. I don't know. I don't know all these things. But there's some things I do know. There's some things I don't wonder about. And the main thing I don't wonder about is does God love me? See, he's proven that. There's no discussion about that. There's no need to think. There's no need to, to, to talk or debate or ration. It's clear as a bell. The Bible says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, if that doesn't declare love, I don't know what is. That is the greatest declaration of love and devotion that you could ever possibly think of. So you can wonder, you can wonder what might happen or what will or this or that or, but you cannot wonder, does he love you? And if you're his child, your your spirit bears witness to the fact that you're his child and that you suffer with him because that's who he is. You, you have his nature upon you. You, you are part of his family. You take on his name. Fourthly, I want you to see God has an upside-down priority. I mean, it's just upside-down. Look at verse 31. God says, seek the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. That's not what our natural response is to do. And God says, you seek. You come to me first. In Matthew chapter 6, the same passage of Scripture at a different time in Jesus' ministry. He says, seek first. Psalm 34 says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. In other words, seek the Lord. He, he, he hears His children. Is it always easy? No. Is it sometimes difficult? Certainly. The Bible says, verse 19 of the same psalm, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Sure. There's deep valleys, and they're dark, and they're scary, and you're not exactly sure what is going to happen, but God's going to deliver you. He's going to be faithful. He's going to do what He says He's going to do. In Psalm 37, the Bible declares, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. In other words, that for us, we need to be about a people who seek the kingdom. You see, when we seek understanding, when we seek comfort, when we seek, well, where are we going? Who are we going to? What are we listening to? It's the kingdom. The kingdom is where the answer lies. Go to the kingdom. God declares over and over that those who are in my kingdom, I hear, I know, I'm with them. I will not leave them or forsake them. I will not allow them to perish. I'm with them. It's an upside-down priority. It's not one in in which it naturally comes to us. We tend to seek things in our own strength, 
and in our own way. We tend to make God a last resort. Remember, God's still in control whether we acknowledge it or not. And so remember, what are we talking about here? We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about worry and anxiety, right? So what is the Bible teaching about seeking the kingdom? It's saying that you face trouble. Welcome to the club. You were born on the planet trouble. So here we are together. All of us are in that boat together. Some of us are rowing at a different pace than others, but we're all there together, right? Now here's the question. What are you going to seek when you find yourself in trouble? Because... As you begin to think about how you're going to fix this and what you're going to do and all that, then you just start moving yourself into worry and anxiety and what Jesus is saying. Wait a minute. Stop. Seek the kingdom first. Start with me. Don't let yourself trail down that path. You never were in control. And you're never going to be in control. What you need to do is know the character and nature of the one who is in control because that's where you'll find your peace. You see, maybe, let me put it to you this way. Maybe you, maybe you have children who are afraid when, when a storm blows up and there's, there's lightning and thunder. And so maybe sometimes you leave your small children at home with a babysitter and you and your, your wife or you and your husband go out to dinner together and a terrible storm breaks out and so you know what's going on at your house. Because every time the storm comes up, what do your children do? They jump up out of their bed and they run like a bunch of banshees down the hall and they dive into your bed and, and just sort of wiggle their way up into the covers. And there they are. Pretty soon you're all together, nice and hot. Right? But what happens when you're not home? What do they do? I can tell you what they don't do. They don't jump in the bed with strangers. They don't feel comfort in someone they're not sure of. They don't find peace. In other words, do you have the ability to stop the lightning or the thunder? No, but your children feel comfort in the character and nature of who you are because you love them and they know that. And they know that you bring peace and security into their life and their own understanding. And so they run to you. They don't run to a stranger. So then what do we do when we are fearful? When we are anxious, when we are worrisome, we need to run to the kingdom, the one who we know. You know what we do? We run to Oprah. We run to Dr. Phil. We run to Barnes and Noble and read some garbage about how we're going to psychobabble fix our family. The kingdom. The kingdom. Spare yourself the misery. Go to the kingdom. Fifthly, God God has this unending pleasure. This unending pleasure. Have you ever thought about what what delights God's heart? What, what, What makes God smile? What brings joy to the countenance of the Lord? Look at verse 32. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, We've looked at this passage in depth before. But what I want you to see this morning is that God's not... He's not saying that it it gives your fathers... It's His good pleasure to give you a part of the kingdom. To give you something out of the kingdom. He says to give you the whole entire kingdom. Now there's a big difference there. Understand Matthew chapter 25... Then the king will say to those on his right hand, this is where the Lord will separate the sheep from the goats. He said, then he will say to those on his right hand, come you, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. That for those who are God's children, we inherit the kingdom. At the moment of adoption, we inherit the kingdom. Now what does that mean? That means we inherit this eternal kingdom. It also means we inherit this earthly millennial kingdom that will come. But it also means the present kingdom. The peace that passes all understanding. The presence of God in our hearts. The Holy Spirit that resides within us. That is the kingdom. Jesus said at the beginning of His ministry, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. So we're kingdom people. We serve a kingdom God. And we inherit the entire kingdom. Not just a piece or a part. 
Second Peter 1 says to those who are Christ. He says this, For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 9, And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance in every good work. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure that what this says is your spiritual cupboard is loaded to bear. It's packed to the top. You can't fit anything else on the shelf. You got everything you need right there. You just got to seek the kingdom. You just got to you just got to say no to the lie and yes to the truth. But who Here's the thing. It's God's pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's his pleasure. This is the God that we serve. Now, why would anyone say no to that? I mean, it would seem to me that up until this point in this passage of Scripture, if I didn't know better, I would think that every person who had ever heard this message is a child of God. Who in this world where there is no reprieve from trouble, there is no escape calamity, who would possibly say no to this? Jesus ends with God's unwavering proposal. He says, sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old. A treasure is in the heavens that will not fail. Where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your heart is, or where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. In other words, God is not laying out a prescription here. That if you want to receive the kingdom, you have to sell all your stuff and give it away to charity. And that's going to somehow negate or make a transaction where you're going to inherit the kingdom. But here's what God is saying. God's saying, you don't need to worry. You don't need to worry. Because if you're my child, I'm in control. I've always been in control. I've never taken a day off. I've never slept or slumbered. I've never missed the detail in your life. I've got this thing. I'm perfect in every way. I never make a mistake. You do not need to worry. Because I've adopted you into my family. I've proven my love for you beyond a shadow of a doubt. I've given you everything you could ever want to know. It's my pleasure to give you the kingdom. But this is for those who submit to my lordship and authority. You see, you cannot receive the kingdom and maintain control. And what Jesus is doing is he's wrapping this up. What's the context of what he's saying? He just got done talking about money. And so he's wrapping this up by saying, Am I your Lord? Will you surrender all to me? Who's in control? Anxious heart. Who's in control? Worry and fretful spirit. Who? Who among you is so distraught about things in the future that have not even happened? Who is buried in the darkness of the events of today as if God has somehow left him or forsaken him in light of all that he has promised to do? You see, when you put your faith in your feelings, you're going to be in trouble. But when you put your faith in facts, your feelings will not lead you astray. And so when you feel afraid and when you feel anxious, you remind yourself of what God has said. You say, God, you're, you're the Lord. And you're not just the Lord, you're my Lord. And you promised to take care of me. And so I trust you. And so even though I feel like things are out of control, even though I sense that things may be going totally awry, even though what I'm seeing and hearing with my physical senses are, are so trying to lead me astray, I know what this says and what is true. Where you have never wavered or never failed. So don't worry. Don't be anxious. Your heavenly father, he's in control. He's got a plan.
He loves you. He'll watch over you and keep you. He's never failed you. It's his pleasure to give you the kingdom, the whole kingdom. Just remember, he's the Lord. Because it all hinges on your heart. Who has your heart? Are you here this morning and you're holding on to your own heart? You're figuring out how you're going to do this and how this is going to work and and what you're going to manage to accomplish? Well, I just hope and pray that God's Word has spoken to you to recognize and realize that apart from Him, you're an orphan who's yet to be adopted. Maybe today, the most unlikely of all parents will invite you into His kingdom. Let's stand, bow our heads, and close our eyes. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And Lord God, we thank You for the comfort that it brings. And Father, we confess before You right now that there's not one of us in this room. Lord, the most spiritual, mature person in this room is fraught with worry and anxiousness. Lord God, thank You for being so kind and patient with us. Thank you for not just telling us not to worry, but explaining to us how it is that we cannot worry. And Lord God, I pray that in the weeks to follow, in the months to come, that Lord God, when we feel ourselves getting overwhelmed, we will stop and we will ask two simple questions. Who is in control? And what do I know for sure about their character and nature? And Lord God, that you'll settle our hearts down. We'll be reminded of your truth. God, we rejoice this morning for those who will be set free from worry and from anxiousness, Lord. Father God, thank you for those who will find a place, Lord God, in your family here. Thank you for those who are seeking a church home. And maybe this is the day that they'll plant their lives here. God, thank you. Thank you that there's an opportunity for an orphan to be adopted into the kingdom. God, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for speaking to us and teaching us and showing us. Now, Lord, will you do what only you can do for your glory in this time?